0: So I want you to picture some simple scenes for just a minute, because you might find that this has been you at one time or another, but picture a Christian student uh, out here in the commons, and it's just before algebra class, and they're way behind on their homework, and they haven't gotten it done, but their friend next to them has all the answers. It's in that scene that the battle begins. Or picture a woman who's out with her friends, and all of her friends are bad-mouthing their husbands. And her husband hasn't really been great lately. It's in that scene that the battle begins. Picture a nice Christian couple that's been dating for about five months, and one night they're together, and things are getting a little hot and a little heavy, and it's there where the battle begins. Picture a Christian businessman. He travels a lot and it's been a long, hard day and he goes back to his hotel room and he has nothing to do and he grabs his laptop and it's there where the battle begins. Picture a Christian family that hears some rumors about some local neighbors. It's there where the battle begins. See, in all of these instances and so many more, we realize that as Christians, every day, in a variety of ways, we face a battle. A fundamental, foundational, can't escape it, always there, need to just kind of take it as it is type of battle. In fact, Paul, in his book, uh, The Letter to the Galatians, starts off saying this in chapter 5, verse 16. He says, I say to you, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature, it wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. Since the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, they are constantly engaged in combat so that you are not free to carry out the intentions that you want to fulfill. He says, ah, but when you're directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. See, Paul captures this scene so well, and he doesn't capture it purely as a theologian. This guy is living the Christian life. This guy knows what it's like to, to face every day and have temptations and have challenges and have difficult people and have attitudes that are internal, attitudes of others that are external toward you. He understands, and so he can say as a practitioner, I know the battle. I know how hard it is to say no to my sinful craving, to say yes to the Holy Spirit, because they are always at war. Always at war. He goes on, he says, now when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. You're going to struggle with things like sexual immorality or impurity or lustful pleasures. You're going to struggle with following other gods. You're going to struggle with going to spiritual things that are not truly given by the Spirit, like sorcery. You're going to struggle with having a hostile disposition and a hostile attitude. You're going to be jealous of others. You're going to be jealous of what they have and you don't have. You're going to be jealous of him or jealous of her or whatever it is. You're going to struggle with that. There's going to be outbursts of anger. You're going to get mad. You're going to burst out. You're going to be selfish. It's all about you. You're going to struggle with ambition and dissension and division, envy and drunkenness and wild parties and sins like these. He says, let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he says something really profound. We have this clash, we have this battle. And when we give into our sinful cravings, boy, that stuff really begins to to, to play out. When we walk in our own strength and our own fortitude, our own might, our own sense of worthiness, that's where we're going to struggle. When we get really proud, when we think we have to take control ourselves, that's where this stuff's going to come out. He says that's what happens when you give into your sinful cravings. But if you walk in the Spirit, he says in verse twenty-two, the Holy Spirit produces all kinds of fruit in our lives—things like love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is against this. There is no law says, so when you walk in the Spirit, it's all different. And I love this list because this list is less about actions and it's way more about attitudes. It's way more about internal disposition and how that plays out in our actions than it really is purely about actions. So Paul gives us this framework instantly. He says, we're all engaged in the battle. So the real issue is, are we walking in the Holy Spirit to deal with that? Or are we walking in our sinful cravings? Do we say, I can get it done? Or do we say, we need the Holy Spirit to get it done through us? See, Paul goes to this place because he knows that is the fountainhead of everything for the Christian. You either live life in the Spirit, or you just don't. You do it on your own, or you do it with Him. Right? This is what Paul knows. And then he gives us encouragement as Christians. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to the cross. They're crucified there with him, right? So, man, that stuff's dethroned, disempowered in our lives. He says, since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives, right? He says, let us not become conceited or provoking one another or being jealous of one another. He brings it right back to live... Life in the Spirit. Now, why do I start in Galatians 5 to look at the story of David and Goliath? Well, it's because I'm here to rain on your story parade. That's why. Right? And here's why I say that. Uh, So often, Uh, These stories that we're looking at, the way we learn them are are a little bit outside of the context of how they fall. We take a lot of Old Testament stories and we snap them out of their housing. uh, What's around it isn't as critical as the the lesson of the story. So we pop this little lesson out. We have this little shepherd boy, David, and this giant uh, killer Goliath. and We snap it out of its context. And then in that, snapping it out, we start to give it meaning that's outside of its context. And and I say all of that because what happens in this particular story is people are taught this in Sunday school. We read it to our children and we teach it as though, well, this story is the story of an underdog. But that's not really what the story is about. Or we say, well, this is a story of courage under pressure. And while there is pressure and there is courage in the story, it's really not a story about pressure and courage under pressure. Sometimes we teach it as the unlikely hero story, but it's really not a story about the unlikely hero. In fact, if anything, it's barely a story about Goliath. It falls into a greater, grander narrative that really has to do with two rulers, One that is currently king and one that's going to be king. And this moment with Goliath is nothing more than a fulcrum to that relationship. It's nothing more than really highlighting a transitional problem between the former king and the future king. And if you take those two kings and you read the entire story, as we're going to see today, what you find is the fundamental difference between king A and king B, is that King A had the Holy Spirit, but then stopped living life in the Spirit. And King B, who comes to power from kind of the throes of this Goliath story, is a king who is going to live in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, seek the Spirit, rely on the Spirit, see life in the context of the Holy Spirit. The story of David and Goliath is actually the story of King Saul and King David. And that really, at its core, is a story of the Holy Spirit. What happens when you live in Him? What happens when you don't live in Him? What happens when you take things in your own hands versus when you leave them in God's hands? So if anything, today is a story about the Holy Spirit. His presence or absence in one's life that's where we're going. So to understand how we get to the story, go back to the story we looked at last week. We looked at the story of Gideon. And at the end of Gideon's story, I mean, before he kind of falls apart and sets up idols again. But remember how Israel said, Gideon, we want you to be our ruler. We want a king. And Gideon said, no, I do not want to rule you, but I do want to be remembered by you. That was his sin. The right thing was, hey, Israel doesn't need a king. The wrong thing is, but I want you to revere me for what I have done. He forgets that God has done the work. So he wants to be revered, but he doesn't want to be a ruler. Israel can't shake their love affair, though, with wanting a king. They want to be like everybody else, right? If your friend jumped off a bridge, they say, Yep, we jumped too. That's what we want, right? They want a king. And so they keep demanding a king and demanding a king and demanding a king. And finally, God says, fine, you want a king? I'll give you a king. You're going to love this. Because you don't want me. You want some human being limited in scope and power to lead you. And he's really going to enslave you and shackle you. But if that's what you want, then I'll give you the king you want. You want a king like everybody else? I'll give you what you want. So he gives them a king. Very tall. Very handsome. Very handsome very uh, reluctant king from the small tribe of Benjamin, this man named Saul. And Saul was reluctant. When God says, fine, that's the king, he always had this sense of fear. He had this sense of timidity. But that's the guy that God's going to choose for Israel to point out to Israel the king is not going to do it for you, especially a king that you define. If you let me define your king, that's one thing. But Israel wants to define their king for themselves. So God says, great, then you're going to get Saul." So then the prophet Samuel comes, and he anoints Saul to be king. So in 1 Samuel chapter 10, it says, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it over Saul's head. And he kissed Saul, and he said, I am doing this because the Lord has appointed you to be the ruler over Israel, his special possession. And it says, And as Saul turned and started to leave, God gave him a new heart, right? Right? And all Samuel's signs were fulfilled that day when Saul and his servants arrived at Gilbeth. They saw a group of prophets coming toward them, and then the Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul. Right. So Saul of himself, not necessarily you know, a bad guy, but not really a courageous guy either, but now he has a new heart, and the Holy Spirit comes and rushes upon him, comes upon this new king of Israel, and he's going to need that immensely. Because he's but a man. Here's the challenge with King Saul over the course of time. King Saul does what it's so easy for all of us to do. King Saul gets busy. King Saul gets preoccupied. King Saul gets practical. He gets stressed out. He starts to get angry. He gets impatient. He doesn't always love God's timing. He wants his timing. He doesn't always like how God is choosing to do things. So he says, I need to get more involved. I got to just roll up my sleeves and get into this mechanism here and make sure that it goes the way I want it to go. See, that's what Saul starts to do. Even though he's got the Holy Spirit, he starts to do this. Now, understand in the Old Testament, it's not like the New Testament. One of the great blessings of being in Christ in the New Testament is once the Spirit, once the Spirit's in you, He's there to stay. In the Old Testament, the Spirit could come and go as He saw fit for purposes that God had orchestrated or ordained. So, the Holy Spirit is upon Saul to do certain things. But over the course of time, like I said, Saul became more a man of thought than he was of prayer. He was more about doing kingly things than dwelling with the one true king of Israel, who was God. He became really preoccupied with consulting people a lot, right? He would consult all the way to witches in Endor who didn't even know or love God. He wanted to conjure spirits from the dead to consult with, much less all the humans that he consults with, because he, he, he figured, well, that gets more done than consulting with God. See, these are all the things that get wrapped into his life. And so when he does that, he becomes imprisoned by fear, by pride, by control, by disobedience. Right? All these things are true of the man who fails to walk in the Spirit. These are true of anybody who fails to walk in the Spirit. Now sometimes you can even be doing it for good and righteous reasons in your mind. I'm just going to be more legal. I'm going to abide by law more. Well, that just has a whole different corrupting influence where you're not kind, you're not compassionate, you're not gracious, you're not forgiving, uh, you're harsh. So it doesn't matter if you go to radical immorality or radical morality without the Holy Spirit. You're you're, you're, you're in in big trouble. Big, big trouble. And that's exactly what happens here. God sees saw, he says, enough, enough. This guy keeps just going against me keeps not walking in the spirit that I've given to him. I'm done with him. And so this message gets to Samuel through, or to Saul through Samuel. And Samuel, or Saul says to Samuel, yes, I have sinned. I acknowledge that I have. I have disobeyed your instructions and the Lord's command. For I was afraid of the people and they demanded things from me. BAM! The fear of people and what people expect of you can be so crippling. And that's what happens here. He caves in. He caves. He says, but now please forgive my sin and come back to me so that I may worship the Lord. And then Samuel replied, I will not go back with you since you have rejected the Lord's command. He has rejected you as king over Israel. I mean, this is harsh stuff. And we go, well, wait a minute, though. I mean, the guy, he's repentant, right? No, he's regretful. There's a big difference between regret and repentance. Regret is, I got caught. Regret is, oh, this messes with my plan. Regret is, "This, this makes me lose some freedoms. I regret that I got busted. I regret they found out. I regret I've been seen. I regret the circumstance. Repentance is, God, I failed you forgive me. And if there is that man, God takes you and forgives you and wipes your guilt and shame away and you are completely cleansed. But that's not what he's doing. He just says, man, my circumstance is awful. I regret that it's turned out this way. But God is done with this man. It's not so much that Saul lost his salvation. That's not the context. That's not the idea of it's just that the Holy Spirit is no longer going to reside with him in the same way. In fact, we're going to get to just how dramatic that is. And you have to understand, this doesn't just affect Saul. Even Samuel, who anointed him as the first king, is devastated by this. He just can't believe that this is how it's gone down. When you get to First Samuel chapter 16, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, You have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel. So fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. For find a man named Jesse who lives there. For I have selected one of his sons to be my king. Now I want you to look really closely what's unique about that. Saul was the king of the people. This young man, whoever he is, is going to be God's king. Notice that? My king. I gave them their king. And their king didn't want to walk in the spirit, even though I gave the spirit. Their king didn't want to walk in the law, though I gave the law. Their king didn't want to give me credit. That's fine. I'm going to remove him, and I'm going to give them my king, my choice. So he's going to go to this little town of Bethlehem and find God's king. And as he goes, he's going to find that God's king is going to look very different, very different. Than any king that he or anybody else in Israel would choose. So Samuel goes and he meets Jesse and he begins to meet the sons of Jesse. He goes to the very first son, right, in verse 6, and he thought, surely this is the Lord's anointing. I mean, this guy's got to be it. He's the oldest son of Jesse, he's handsome, he's tall, he's good looking, he's rugged, he's all these things. But we see that God looks a little differently. This the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see the way that you see. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Right? All of this is critical to understanding the story of David and Goliath. If you don't understand this right here, the rest of the story is just, oh, that's nice. It's the underdog story. That's all it is. Well, without any intentional message behind it. Here you start to see the intentional message shape up. And this is valuable for us because, you know what, again, we are so um, written on by our surroundings that this message has to speak to us to say, hey, are you looking with God's eyes? Because we look with earthly eyes all the time. And I'm not saying earthly eyes are sinful. I didn't say worldly. I said earthly. We look with earthly eyes all the time. We look for people to lead us, and we ask the questions. Well, do they have character? Do they have good communication skills? Are they competent? Right? Do they have good chemistry working with others? Do they have the right education? Do they have the right background, the right resume, the right references, the right history? These aren't bad things, Because in the end, what we want out of said person is a producer, right? We want to choose somebody that's going to produce for us the results we desire. So we go through our whole laundry list of what they need to be. We look with earthly eyes. God does not want a producer in his king. You ready? He wants a follower. God doesn't want a producer. God wants a follower. Because God knows that the health of his nation, the health of his bride, the health of his family, the health of his chosen people is not going to be found in a producer. But in one who says, I'm a follower. In one that constantly looks to God. In one that constantly seeks his strength, his wisdom, his insight, his power, his presence. That's what God wants in his king, not their king. That's why he says he's going to be my king. I'm looking for that part. That's how God looks. See, there's a difference between useful people and people who want to be used. There's a difference. Useful people keep control in in, in their corner. I'm going to be useful. I'm a volunteer. I'm useful. To be used says, "Hey, use me." I'm a servant. I'm not in control. I'm not claiming control. I just want to be used. I just want to be a conduit. I just want to be a vessel. Useful people want acknowledgement. People that are willing to be used of God don't need any notoriety. And so God wants somebody who is desiring to be used, not just useful. He doesn't want to produce her as much as he wants to follow her. See, there are plenty of smart people, strong people, and stubborn people in the world to get things done. There's plenty. But God wants a surrendered, seeking, spirit-driven man, who then from being seeking, spirit-driven, right, hungry for God, from that, then they can be strong in all the right ways. They can be stubborn on all the right things. They can be smart with all the right wisdom, because now it's God's thing, it's not their thing. It's a heavenly mind, not an earthly mind. It's all about Him, and it's not about them. That's what God needs. And God wants to look at the heart, and He wants to find the right heart, because He knows, you ready? The heart is what? The well spring of life. That's what the Bible says, right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus said. Out of the abundance of the heart, we live We do. We act. We think. And Paul knows this too. He says, oh, now there's a battle. There's the Holy Spirit living in there. And then there's this other junk you picked up over the course of time. And they're going to fight against each other. And what I want is the Spirit to uh, envelop all of that and, and govern all of that stuff. But it has to be a right heart. Right? A heart connected to the Holy Spirit is unstoppable. Unstoppable. A heart disconnected to the Holy Spirit, ready? It's just unpredictable. You never know what it's going to do next. Sometimes it chooses the right thing. Sometimes it chooses the wrong thing. Sometimes it's really kind. Sometimes it flips out. You never know what you're coming home to. You never know what's going to come to work the next day. You never know what kid is going to walk in the door from school, right? If it's not Spirit-directed, Spirit-led, Spirit-entrenched... It's just unpredictable, and Saul is going to be an unpredictable guy. Well, the story goes on for Samuel chapter sixteen. This is in the same way all of seven all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel, right? So is it the first one? No, nope, that's not the king, right? So we're at God wants a heart, right? Oldest not it. Next one's not it. Next one's not it. Next one's not it. Goes through all seven, and then Samuel said to Jesse, "The Lord has not chosen any of these, right?" And then Samuel asked, are are these all of the sons you have? And then they said, well, there there is still this youngest one. He's out in the fields watching the sheep and the goats. So he said, send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. Which I'm like, really? Is that, like, oh, look at those eyes. Um, Is that really what he thought? Like, man, good looking eyes. Like, Justin Bieber would be jealous. All right, so... He's dark and handsome and beautiful eyes, and the Lord said, This is the one. I want you to anoint him. Now, this isn't because of his appearance. You look and go, But it just said he's handsome and dark and Justin Biebery and all You're Like God chose him for his good looks, right? No, God's already said it's not the good looks. I am choosing him because he has a desperate heart. He has a desperate heart. He wants God. And you see this in David's life later, right? When I mean, you just read the Psalms, and you see a guy that's desperate for God, right? I mean, like, think about the things that he does. It's just like, God, I just want you like a deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. I mean, this guy was desperate for God. He wanted God. Enjoy. joy, God would say, seek my face. And David says, my heart leapt in my chest. Oh, Lord, your face, I seek. He just wants God. He has this insatiable appetite for God, even in his repentance when he blows it in sins and just his life is skidding across the runway of his existence. He still cries out to God, O Lord, the God of my mercy, forgive my deep sins. He says, don't take your spirit from me. He just wanted presence. He wants God. He's desperate for God in his pain. What does he say? My refuge and my deliverer, my God, my comfort, my rock. See, that's what God seeks. Not the fastest, not the smartest, not the strongest, not the slickest, not the cleanest, but the desperate. The Christian life never will make sense. It'll just be rules. It'll just be morals if we don't tether that what God ultimately seeks is that heart. For people to be that desperate for God. And and, and David is, is, he's painfully imperfect. He starts out strong and ends weak like almost every other character in this entire series. But in those early days especially, he is passionate so in verse 13, it says, So David stood among his brothers. Samuel took a flask of olive oil that he had brought, and he anointed David with the oil. I and mean, the oil kind of symbolizes, like the work of the Holy Spirit, just gets into all the cracks and crevices and just oozes everywhere, just envelops David, right? The oil is like that symbolism of the Holy Spirit. And it says, And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day. On. Three times in David's life is he anointed He's anointed in Second uh, Samuel chapter 5 as king of Israel. He's anointed in 2 Samuel chapter 3 as king of Judah. And then the very first time is right here. And it's the only one that actually matters. Because this is not with a title. This is with the spirit of the living God. This is with empowerment. Not just simply pedigree or uh, bragging rights or here's my label. It's just boom, spirit-fueled person. Because a spirit-fueled, spirit-submitted, spirit-led, spirit-wanting person is more powerful, confident, peaceful, certain, or equipped than any other person on the planet. They just are. Because if you're not led of the spirit, then basically uh, you're just cleaving to every earthly tool at your disposal. And those are going to work as hard as you work. They're going to last as long as you last. They're going to be as good as you know how to wield them. And they're going to stop and give up at some point, because they can't carry you all the way through. Where the spirit-fueled person is limited only by God's agenda for their life. God says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to go do this thing, and you've got everything you need to go do it. You don't have to stress out about that. You just go do it. Right? That's the real big idea for David's life. And so the Spirit, again, rushes upon David, right? Came powerfully upon him on that day. Very next verse. You know what happens, though? The spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. That's what that is. Right? So, David, kind of a nobody, just out tending sheep, God says, That's the heart I want. That's the heart I can use. That's the life I can bless. I'm giving my spirit to that man. And that guy that's king, that guy, we're done. And I'm going to pull the spirit from Saul. And not only that, it says, And then God sent a harmful spirit from the Lord to torment him. That's a drag. Right? So not only do you not have the comfort, the calm, the serenity, the hope, whatever from the Holy Spirit, now you've got somebody that just jacks with your day all the time because it's fun. He has no guide. He has no peace. He has this problem. And so Saul, he melts down. I mean, I would too. I guess if I had like a demon chilling in my office all day with me, I would be melting down too. And so he melts down. He can't get anything done. Right? And so finally, one day, verse 18, one of the servants of Saul said, One of Jesse's sons from Bethlehem is a talented harp player. Not only that, he is a brave warrior. He's a man of war. So, you know, when we think about David the little shepherd boy, he's he's seen combat by now. Right? So he's these things, right? So he's a talented harp player. He's a brave warrior. He's a man of war. He has good judgment. He's fine looking, and the Lord is with him. I hate that movie. Right? Like, I'm, like, I'm not half of those, right? You know what I mean? I'm, like, I'm not good looking. Can't play an instrument to save my life. Can't even play the triangle, you know? So, I got nothing. But this guy has got it all. Why? Because he's doing exactly what God has built him to do with the Holy Spirit that he's empowered him to do it with. Right? So, he's all of these things. So, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son, David, the shepherd. So David went to Saul and began serving him. Saul loved David very much, and David became his armor-bearer. So what a weird scene. Here's this hidden king, right? Uh, David's not ready to be king yet. He's anointed to be king. He's not ready to be king, so he's a king hidden away, right? He's not even, like, keeping a secret, like, oh, I know who's really in charge. I'm in charge. He doesn't think that. He's just there to serve. But this hidden anointed king is there to serve now a non-anointed king, right? And the strangest part of it is what Saul wants again is that peace of the Lord, and the only way he's going to get it is by proxy through David, who has the Holy Spirit. So David's there being this proxy-soothing source to a rebellious, sinful king, right? It's really kind of a weird, strange scene. But there Saul finds some comfort, and as David would play his harp or whatever else, this demonic spirit would leave. But eventually, as being a king and having a country that you have to run, you eventually have enemies that kind of well up, and you have to deal with some stuff. And that's exactly what happens. There is this oncoming war where the Philistines decided that they're done with the Israelites. The Israelites don't like the Philistines anyway. They have clashed many times in history. And so on this particular occasion, they gather in the Valley of Elah, right? And they're going to go to town on each other there. And as they go to war, so Saul takes his army, and the Philistines have their army, and they converge onto this location. And as they're there, there's quite a sight that emerges in chapter 17. It's a man named Goliath. This is why the David and Goliath story starts to make sense. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the force of Israel. He was over nine feet tall, or as Abby said, ten feet. Um, He was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him then, carrying a large shield. Now this is not how they fought at all. This was not like, oh man, this is how everybody was decked out. You didn't do this. This is psychological warfare. Right, so you get this giant, enormous body, just Andre the Giant, and some of you don't even know, him, which breaks my heart. Uh, so, you know, comes stomping out, right? And he is—I mean, you got to imagine. Here is the, the the Mideastern sun, right, just raining down on this environment, and you see nothing but just this shiny bronze come lurching forward. The whole thing's designed to melt your heart. Right? The whole thing is basically a whole ton of gadgets designed to right there slay the spirit of Israel. Right there where they'll just be like, never mind, we can't do this. And then he begins to speak. It says, Goliath stood and he shouted a taunt across at the Israelites. He says, why are you all coming out to fight? I am the Philistine champion, but you are only the servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, then you will be our slaves. He says, "I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight." And see, when he does this, he's got a lot of things going on. First of all, he says, "I, I, I question your resolve. Really, you're going to come and fight? Why don't you come and fight?" Right? Then he educates them. Here's how we're going to do this. I'm going to fight one of your guys. So he's, he's already taking control of the entire battlefield, right? And then he insults their king. Oh, you're just the servants of Saul, which makes Saul just a servant too. I'm better than your king. And then the last thing he does is when he says, I defy the armies of Israel. Literally what he's saying is, here's your line. Your God's name is in your line. I just crossed your God and your line. It's like he gave them the double finger. Boom. That's what he does. That's all he does. He's just totally defying them, totally taunting them. But this is Israel, the chosen race of God, right? The nation where God dwells. These guys aren't going to stand up for that, right? They're not going to just sit down and cry and go home, are they? Well, verse 11, when Saul and Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. Right? So, he stomps out. He defies God. And they're all afraid. Why? Well, because Saul... Had he been a king who obeyed God and still had the Holy Spirit, would see this whole thing differently. When you're spirit-led, you realize, whoa, God's on my side. When you're thinking, no, nah, no, nah, i got to get real practical here. God's not on my side. i got to figure this out. Boy, you're going to get really, really nervous really fast. You're going to start going through, oh, what do, do? what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Do I run? Do I do this? Do I do this? Who's our biggest guy? I need to know the biggest guy. Who's going to die? Um, you know, like, you're going to do all of them when you're not led of the Spirit. So he's not looking with spiritual eyes, he's looking with very realistic eyes, practical eyes. And with that, he has very realistic and practical fears. But but notice how the story is is, is shifting. Right? When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. But then there's this weird little side story in verse 17. But then one day Jesse said to David. And this is all in the storyline. He says, take this basket of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread and carry them quickly to your brothers and give them ten cuts of cheese to the captain, right? So take all of that. Say all your brothers are getting along and bring back a report on how they were doing because David' brothers, uh, they were with Saul and the Israelite armies fighting against the Philistines. See, here's why this little part of the story exists. David didn't wake up one day and say, today is the day I become a hero. It's just another day for him. Now, David had seen combat. We've already learned that he was a man of war, and he was skillful in that way. So, again, but on this particular battle, he's just not called to war. He's just at home helping his dad, keeping up the ranch, so to speak. But it's on this day that God says, no, 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 this is where it's going to be different. The day that you go to deliver hoagies, when you don't expect it, is what I'm going to do And here is the key. I look at that, and I remember I kept looking at the still free. And I'm like, what what was so unique about that day? And I really have come to the conclusion, there was nothing unique about it. There was not one single thing unique about the day. But what is unique is that David was always prepared for if a day came. Right? So he always sought to walk close to the Lord. He always sought to honor God. He always wanted to be led of the Spirit. So then when a particular a moment erupts into his life, he's prepared. Don't ever think that you can quickly muster. You have to always be ready. And when you're ready, that's when God can use you. If you're always waiting for God to use you and that's when you're going to get ready, you're going to have problems. David was always prepared. He was always ready. He wasn't trying to find true greatness. God just knew he could use him for greatness. And that was the day. Because David was ready. David was the seeker of God. And so in verse 20, it says he arrived at the camp just as the Israelite army was leaving for the battlefield with shouts and battle cries. So basically, they'd line up on each side, right? We have spirit. Yes, we do. We have spirit. You know, so that's, and they do it back and forth battle cries back and forth, right? Even though Israel's like, we got spirit, yes, we did, right? So that's what they would do. They shout back and forth, right? So soon the Israelite and Philistine forces stood facing each other, army against army. And so David left the things to the keeper of supplies and hurried after the ranks to greet his brothers. And as he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks. And then David heard him shout his usual taunt, like, oh, here it is again, right? Shouts his usual taunt, to the army of Israel. And as soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. Right? So they're all lined up. We got spirit. Yes, we do. We got spared. Ah! Right? That's all that happens. And uh, David's just watching people like go past him. like, What just happened? Who are we? Right? I mean, that's what David's thinking. Who are we as a people? Right? What are we doing? And so what's great As David asks a great question, he says, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy? The armies of the living God. Best cut down in all the Bible. It's awesome. I wish I could talk like that. Right? He makes fun of his junk and then quotes God. I can barely get away with that joke, and that's what he says, all right? In fact, I probably didn't get away with it. All right, so... Sorry, Grandma. All right, so... um, But he's just got a completely different mindset here. And understand, David is not being patriotic. David isn't like, ah, Israel, right? Because David doesn't look at their problem being a military problem. He sees their problem be a theological problem. That's the problem, right? He sees that this guy is defying... This guy is mocking the army of the living God, which means he's mocking God. He's crossing God's line. So so David just looks and says, whoa, wait a minute. This guy's a blasphemer, right? I mean, this is the ultimate big idea problem for David. So he's like, man, what, what is the reward for just dropping that punk like a bad habit? That's what he wants to know, right? So here's the reward. says the king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. He will give the man one of his daughters for a wife, and the man shall entirely be exempt from paying taxes. (laughs) You get to keep your own money, and you get to get the wife of a demon-possessed crazy man's daughter. I mean, like... Who's probably expensive to take care of, right? So, that's why you got to keep your taxes. She is spending. All right, so, it's a king's daughter. It's a king's daughter, that's what I mean. All right, so... Like, I have some going, oh, he is just mad. All right, so, that's what you get. I, that doesn't sound like much of a reward, but that's what he gets. So, this is when David's older brother, Elab, heard David was talking to the man. He was angry. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep that you're supposed to be taking care of? What a great, that's a big brother right there. All right. He says, I know about your pride and your deceit. You just want to come and see the battle. I mean, it's like David is not respected in his own home, right? But the other thing is that David's starting to ask questions and he's showing himself to be kind of tough and his big brothers are being kind of wussies. So they're trying to cut him down to size with that. And I love his response. What have I done now? That's like the little brother talking, right? Oh, give me a break. What did I do this time, all right? He says, I was only asking a questions. So he walked over some of the others and asked them the same thing and he received the same answer. Then David's question was reported all the way to King Saul and the king sent for him. Basically, everyone sees the same problem. Everybody sees the exact same problem in the whole scene. The difference is David sees the problem and he also wants to seize the problem and nobody else is doing that, right? He sees and he wants to seize. Everybody else just sees the dilemma, right? And then this is this is such an important scene right here in verses 32 and 33. It says, And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go up against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. There it is, right there. There is your critical moment. You want a verse to memorize? Memorize that, because what you have right there is the butting up of the two stories, right? The Spirit-led and the Spirit-less converge right here. That's all it is. So, what does the spiritless guy say? Here's the problem. It's too dangerous. Because he's spiritless. He's just seeing it purely human, right? You've had a little bit of combat experience, but you're still kind of a boy in comparison to this guy. There's the problem. It's too dangerous. But then you see the spirit led guy. And the spirit led guy says, you know what? Here's the promise. Right? Don't let your heart fail. Don't let anybody's heart fail. No man's heart should fail. Because he knows God is on your side. It always comes down to that very simple concept. And that's what the story's about, right? The spirit led, and the spirit less. Erwin McManus had a great quote. He said, The center of God's will is not a safe place, but the most dangerous place in the world. To live outside of God's will puts us in danger. To live in his will makes us dangerous. And see, that's exactly what's going on here. David is dangerous. He has a faith that holds the capacity to endure uncertainty with a level of certainty. Right? Like, he doesn't know exactly how it's going to shake down with Goliath. He's uncertain about that specific event. But he has this faith that has certainty that no matter what's going to happen next, God's going to be big. Even though David doesn't even know what that means for him personally, God's going to be big on the part of Israel. And so David in verse 34, he uh, persisted with his argument. He says, I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats. He says, when a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. Or if the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. This guy is gnarly. Right. I have done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this uncircumcised Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Bam! Love that. But then notice verse 37. Here's the key. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this forest. Notice what David does not appeal to. He does not appeal to his ability. He does not even appeal to his experience, except to the degree he says, In my experience, God has delivered me. Right? In my ability, God has strengthened me. God gets all the credit. Because David is a guy desperate for God. David is a guy that knows he has to rely purely on God. So he puts it all back to God. And so finally Saul consented. He says, all right, go ahead. He says, may the Lord be with you. Sounds like may the force be with you, especially from this guy. I don't know how much he means it. He says, then Saul gave David his own armor, a bronze helmet, a coat of mail. David put it on, strapped the sword over it, and he took a step or two, and he realized this is not going to work, right? I can't go in these things and protested, I am not used to them. And so David took them off again, right? I mean, David just knows, you know, this isn't me. This is not even going in the spirit of what I'm talking about. So instead he goes with the tools of his trade. Verse 40, he picked up five smooth stones from a stream and put them into a shepherd's bag. Then armed only with the shepherd's staff and a sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. So he just has four basic items, right? He's got a staff, got a sling, got a satchel, and he's got five stones. Okay? And, and, and that it's there are stones and that there's five are both significant. They're stones because David is not really going to fight this guy. He's going to punish this guy. He's going to punish him. Why? Because he's already said, this guy's a blasphemer. The law says you stone a blasphemer. That's why he's grabbing rocks. He doesn't need a sword because he's not going to war. He's grabbing a rock because he's going to uphold the law. Right? So that's his plan. This guy has defied God. This guy has insulted God. It's not about Israel. It's about God. Right? So he's got a rock. But he grabs five. As we learn in 2 Samuel that Goliath had four brothers, right? They're all big and they're all foreboding. And David's like, I'll drop that, sorry guys, butt, and if the other four come, I'll drop those four. I've got five. And I'm a sure shot. Why? Because God's on my side. So that's the plan. So, since the Philistine moved forward and came to David near him with a shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome. Still like, oh, but he's good-looking. Um, all right? Who is it? Good-looking kid I'm going to kill here. All right? So, the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you should come at me with sticks again? You know, that's what a shepherd boy has. He has sticks to push away the dogs, right? So, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the bees of the fields. This guy is pleasant, especially at Thanksgiving. All right. But then verse 45, David replied to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's army, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today, the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you, and I will cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, not with the sword and the spear, for this is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. I mean, David is on it, man. He is on fire. Right? Because he is anointed of the Spirit. I mean, he's like, you want to throw? We're going to throw. And not only going to kill you, I'm going to cut off your head, I'm going to kill all your guys. They're going to feed the animals. woo That's David. I mean, he is ignited, man. He is just on fire. He's like, you got a bunch of gadgets, I got God, and he's mad at you. Buckle up, old man. That's what he says. It's in Hebrew, it's hard to see. All right. Verse 48, as Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him and he reached into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with a sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in and Goliath stumbled and fell down to the ground. Then David quickly ran over, pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath, and David used it to kill him by cutting off his head. We always forget that part of the story with the kids. And he hit him with a rock and he fell and quick, move on, get to like Psalms, quick, run. Um... But but notice the vernacular, for he had no sword. I mean, this is one of those themes that we've seen throughout our stories, right? Like like Abraham has the blade lifted and then God stays his hands. He's not going to do it a, a different way. Or Moses triumphs over the Egyptians with just a rod held out and they all drown in the sea. Or Joshua, it's just a trumpet blast that brings down the walls. Or Gideon, right, with just the shout and 300 torches. It's like God loves to deliver in very strange ways. And so even here, God triumphs through David with a sling and a stone. And he says, all right, this is it, man. You you have defied the living God. This is blasphemy. And God takes his name as holy. And then he takes the enemy's sword. And he takes off his head. When the Philistines saw that the champion was dead, they turned and they ran. No kidding. Then the men of Israel and Judah gave a great shout of triumph and rushed after the Philistines. Bodies of the dead and wounded Philistines were strewn all along the road, right? Everybody's eating that day. That's what David promised. And then in verse 54, David took the Philistines' head to Jerusalem. Right? So it wasn't just like he locked them off and left it there. He took it as a trophy. And understand, we go, oh, Jerusalem, the city of David. Not yet. Israelites did not control Jerusalem when David does this. So what David does is he goes to his enemies, holds up Goliath's head and says, I'm coming. That's what he says. He says, I'm coming for you. I'm coming for this city. Now again, he doesn't do this as some bloodthirsty warrior. He does this because, go back to his thing, you have defied the living God. You have mocked the living God. You oppose the living God. This is a theological conviction for David. You're against him, and I'm for him, and his Spirit's upon me to do this thing. And so we look at that and go, oh man, finally Israel's going to be on the right track. Right? Everybody's going to be happy. This is the happy ending to the story, right? David wins over Goliath and everybody's satisfied. Well, it says, When the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul, and they sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. And this was their song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Uh-oh. It's a good thing Saul's not some demon-possessed whack job or anything, right? That's, that's going to go well. Verse 8, and Saul heard this and made him very angry. He says, What is this? They credit David with 10,000 and me with only thousands? Next thing you'll know, they'll want to make him king. <laughs> Alright. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Here's the first thing about this. Um, a life outside of the Spirit's leading, leading, rather, life outside of the spirit's leading becomes all about me. So that's what's happening here. So God's just delivered Israel. David, who, you know, not only went into battle against a pretty fierce foe, but goes into battle without any kind of real weaponry, wins, gives God all the credit, but all Saul can think about is himself. When you're living in a life apart from the Spirit's guidance, it becomes all about me. So it says, the very next day, a tormenting spirit from God overwhelmed Saul, and he began to rave in his house like a madman. David was playing the harp as he did each day, but Saul had a spear in his hand, and he suddenly hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall. But David escaped twice. I, I look at that. I'm like, first of all, like David stuck around a second time, impressive. Um, but then here's another thing about life outside of the Spirit's leading; it becomes about hurting those who hurt me. Right? So I'm, I'm not walking in the spirit. I'm walking in the flesh. When I'm walking in the flesh, the first thing is it's all about me. I don't want to say it's all about me. I want to say how they're all stupid. It's all about them being stupid, which is really all about me. And the second thing is, well, they've hurt me. So I want them to be hurt. I want to send them a nasty email. I want to say something about them. I want to yell at them. I want to inflict pain. I want to take something. What? Because my, my plan is to hurt them. I want them to suffer as I've suffered. But then you also see a spirit led life in David where he sticks around twice. He doesn't run away. He's like, I don't know what's going on. He probably was just throwing at something behind me. You know, I don't know what David's motives or his thinking was, but he stays in the pocket. Well, then it says one day Saul said to David, I am ready to give you my older daughter as a wife, but you must prove yourself to be a real warrior by fighting the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, I'll send him out against the Philistines again and let them kill him rather than doing it myself. A life outside of the Spirit's leading becomes all about using others for my purposes if they serve me. So he's going to use his own daughter to try to kill David. He's conniving that. But I'll use other people if it gets what I want. But then notice David... Who am I? And what is my family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law? He says, My father's family is nothing. Right? I mean, like David, this is a spirit-led life. So even when somebody's plotting against you, David's like, oh, who, I, I, I'm not even worthy to be related to you. you know, you're like, wait, he's crazy. Who he wants to kill you? Well, David has a humble spirit. He's showing the fruit of the spirit. It says, in the meantime, after Saul says, all right, we're not going to marry you after that, brother. We'll do something else. In the meantime, Saul's daughter, Michael, had fallen in love with David. And Saul was delighted when he heard about him. Here's another chance to kill him at the hands of the Philistines, Saul said to himself. So he said to David on that day, today you have a chance, a second chance to become my son-in-law. Here's the next thing about a life outside of the Spirit's leading. Uh, Saul's the greatest commandment of all, which is life. It's all he's doing. Oh, my daughter loves him. How do I use that? How do I use love to have revenge? How do I use love to make it all about me, to hurt those who hurt me, because I'm insecure and impetuous in upset. So, verse 22, Then Saul said to his men, says, says uh, say this to David, the king really likes you, and so do we. Oh, that sounds great. Sounds like junior high. All right. So why don't you accept the king's offer and become a son-in-law? And when so- Saul's men said these things to David, he replied, How can a poor man from a humble family afford the bride price for the daughter of a king? David is still so humble. In fact, if anything, when you're led to the Spirit, it's love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness go back to the fruit of the Spirit. That's all David's displaying. Why? Because it's a life led by the Spirit versus Saul, which is a life led away from the Spirit. So, when Saul's men reported back to the king, he told them, tell David, that all I want for the bride price is 100 Philistine foreskins. What a weird price. Right? So, because I just want vengeance on my enemies. Right? Because what Saul really had in mind is that David would be killed in the fight. David was delighted, though. Why? Because he's led by the Spirit. He's delighted to accept the offer before the time expired. He and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. This is nuts, all right? Then David fulfilled the king's requirement by presenting all the foreskins to him. That's a stringer of 200 nasty little things. I didn't write this stuff. I just preach it, all right? Like like if some guy comes, I would like to marry honor. All right, here's what I want. Um... (laughs) It's an awesome deterrent, though. I'll tell you what. It's 198, bro. You didn't try hard enough. All right, so. But David did it. And then Saul realized that the Lord was with David, and how much... He realized his daughter, Michael, loved him. Saul became even more afraid of him, and he remained David's enemy for the rest of his life. I mean, again, you you see here, where it's just, again, a life void of the Spirit. It's vengeful, it's angry, it's afraid, it's it's enslaved. It's just enslaved. A life outside of the Spirit is enslaved. That's all it is. But the difference between Saul and David is seen in 1 Samuel 18, 14 says, and Saul, or in David rather, behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. That's all it comes down to. One man said, I want to walk in the Spirit. The other man said, I want to walk in my own sinful cravings. I want to do my thing. I want to do God's thing. I want to seek my wisdom. I want to seek God's wisdom. I want to respond in my ways. I want to respond in God's ways. I want to exhibit these fruits. No, I want to exhibit these indiscretions. That's all this whole story is. Goliath is just sort of the centerpin again to exhibit that truth. And so the difference is acting wisely, pleasing the Lord, or acting foolishly, and going against the Lord. That's the big idea. Here's the sad thing David didn't always act serenely. You can't just look at this and say, oh, so if I start out young and I do it well and I go well for a year or two years or three years, it's like autopilot. And then it's just like the Holy Spirit's got to control me and I have no control of myself. He just does. It's like I'm, I'm possessed by the Spirit, right? No, you have to engage the Holy Spirit. And there's a season in David's life where he does not engage the Holy Spirit. And he sins and he commits adultery and kills the husband and in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 9, it says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord, and you've done evil in his sight? So this is King David. The guy that was getting it all done is now not getting it all done. He says, You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. He says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And there's a whole story behind that, but again, I read it only for this one reason, which is don't think again that you can be on autopilot and it's going to be fine. You have to keep going to the well. You have to keep drawing off the spirit. You have to keep seeking out. You have to keep wanting Him. And that is the message of the Christian life. Romans chapter 8, and I'm closing with this. So, so there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to Him, the power of the life-giving Spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. So that's what you got. You got the Holy Spirit. You have what you need. You have all the strength that is needed to be there voices. He says, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. He says, for if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For you who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you've received God's Spirit when He adopted you as His own children. Now we call Him Abba. Father, read that for this reason. And again, I close with this. If there's anything that we must embrace and strive to master in our Christian life, it's not better character. It's not better morals. It's not more rules. It's not being well-groomed and well-refined. Those are all plenty good, nice and fine, if it's derived from the core, which is a life in the spirit if it's that thing where every day, many times a day, you say, Jesus, I need you. Spirit, live through me. Spirit, speak through me. Spirit, do your thing in me. Spirit, bring your fruit in me. Spirit, live your life in me. That is the difference. The Christian life was not a set of extra rules on top of the Old Testament rules. What the New Testament says is, whoa, all those rules don't matter. If you apply this one thing, which is life in the spirit, daily dependence, daily begging, daily seeking, daily wanting, daily saying, I just need you to live your life to me, to bring this life out of me that you promise. Again, so often we're running around trying to do, 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 refine, act, and be, but we don't do it with the strength that He's given. We need to get back to the strength. This is this thing I know in my life in the last several months, it's like that has become my prayer dozens of times a day Holy Spirit do your work Holy Spirit draw me in Holy Spirit speak to my life Holy Spirit make me passionate and he's faithful to that if we seek him but if our whole plan is just I want good character I want good competency I want refinement for life and you know what I do that maybe once a day we're not going to feel him we're not going to have him we're not going to sense it. because it comes back to I need you right now Oh. And right now. Oh, and but and, and right now. I need you right now. And I, in other words, what we need to do is as Paul says, being stepped with the spirit. Every step I need you now. I need you now. I need you now. That's the difference between spirit led and spirit led. Let's pray together, Jesus. I thank you for your word. I thank you for these reminders. Painful as they are but profound and powerful. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would truly come upon all of us as a people. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will draw out in us the, the, the joy of being your kids, saying, "I'm a Father, because we're your kids. Therefore, the joy of living a life in you. May all of our dispositions and inclinations flow from life in you versus just trying to be good people. May we walk in step with you every day, Holy Spirit,